0: I'm Finnegan, and you are listening to Restitutio, a podcast that seeks to recover authentic Christianity and live it out today. Aaron Schellenberger studied under Mike Lacona at Southern Evangelical Seminary in Charlotte, North Carolina. Today, he shares about his research on the historicity of the resurrection, in particular, His thesis tackled three main objections brought forth by the popular author and anti-Christian Bart Ehrman. Now, I realize this episode and the next two that follow are a tad technical, so if that's not your jam, then you may want to skip them, and I'll catch you on the other side. However, what I have noticed in the past is that our most technical episodes tend to get a lot of downloads. So we'll see how it goes. In our conversation today, we discuss the importance of resurrection—of course, we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus here—and how Ehrman's attack on the reliability of the Gospels fails to undermine the case for the resurrection. Also, I bring up Lycona's somewhat controversial book called Why Are There Differences in the Gospels and get Schellenberger's take on it. Here now is episode 444, Resurrection Objection 1. Unreliable Gospels, with Aaron Schellenberger. Welcome to Resitudio, Aaron Schellenberger. So glad you could be with us today. Thank you for taking some time out of your schedule.
1: Thank you, Sean. I appreciate you having me here.
0: So today we're talking about your master's thesis, and your title was an evaluation of Bart D. Ehrman's twofold challenge to establishing the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. First of all, I love that title. I'm just a huge fan of long titles, always have been, ever since I encountered books from the 1800s and just saw these epic long titles. I think the longer the title, the better. Uh, but for our audience and those who maybe not know, who is Bart Ehrman and Why did you decide to write about him, of all people?
1: Well, Bart Ehrman is very popular. He is a New Testament critic who uh, offers a number of objections to establishing the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. And a lot of Christians are questioning their faith because of his writings. As a matter of fact, uh, Ehrman was once a Christian, for a while, and then later on abandoned his faith. He did not abandon the faith because of him becoming a New Testament critic. He abandoned the faith because of the problem of evil. And then later on, he uh, got more into details about trying to tell people that the resurrection cannot be established as a historical event. Uh, he's not denying that it, that it happened. Okay, What he's denying is that historians qua historians can establish the resurrection of jesus as a historical event okay uh, for the reasons that uh, we'll be getting into
0: very good so Ehrman or ehrman i mean he calls himself Ehrman, but i think most <laughs> most of us call him Ehrman. his popularity i think is really right uh, a driving force here because you know if he was just some obscure <laughs> scholar i I don't really see him making any original claims or arguments, in all honesty. And I I haven't read all of his corpus. I mean, he just pumps out book after book after book. They all go to the New York Times bestseller list. He makes tons of money on them. And he's a controversialist. But what is interesting and important about him is that he is so well-read. He is so popular on YouTube. There's a lot of videos of him. And he is... Uh, very influential among Jesus scholars, historical Jesus scholars. If you look at the great courses, the various Christian courses on the Gospels or New Testament or early Christian history, they're all taught by Ehrman. So he's somebody that you got to do business with if you're seeking to defend Christianity, wouldn't you say?
1: Oh, yes. As a matter of fact, one main reason why he is very popular is because he is a very good communicator. Yes, he is. He writes very well. He speaks very well. He mm-hmm. debates very well. <laughs> yeah. For that reason, he is honestly one of my favorite uh, communicators, uh, not necessarily as a New Testament scholar or an atheist or an agnostic, because he calls himself atheist agnostic. He is atheist when it comes to the existence of the Christian God. But he's agnostic when it comes to the existence of other gods. Interesting. But he is very influential because he communicates well, and you made a good point about the fact that the material that he puts out is really not new. It's been around for a while now. Yeah. It's just now coming in to the forefront of the laity and the, you know, in the popular apologetics. So, uh, and I agree that uh, we have to answer his objections. And to me, uh, the objections against establishing the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event is very important. And we have to provide a good answer for that.
0: Let's talk about the resurrection. Why is the resurrection so important? Why is that what you chose to focus on rather than... God's existence, the reliability of the Gospels, textual criticism, other is- or the problem of suffering. Other issues that Ehrman also attacks in several of his other books. Why, why, for you, was resurrection so attractive and important?
1: First of all, the resurrection is the heart of Christianity. It is a historical event. And if that historical event did not happen, guess what? According to Paul, we're still in our sins, mm. and we'll never rise from the dead.
0: Yeah, that's kind of a big deal.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, that's our key to our immortality. <laughs> so that's one. The other one is, um, it is God's revelation. God, it is God's way to tell us, hey, I exist. I love you. I sent my son, you know, who is a human messiah and he died physically he died for our sins and he was raised back to life by me says god yeah the resurrection of Jesus is the heart of the matter
0: yeah well aaron would you would you say that if the resurrection of jesus didn't happen if if somehow you could be convinced to believe that the resurrection of jesus didn't happen would you still be a christian
1: that is a tricky question, in my, <laughs> in my view, because... i just curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because when I say the resurrection of Jesus, I'm talking about the bodily, physical yeah. coming back to life, yeah. unto immortal life, okay? That, that's my definition of the resurrection. Now, if we say that that did not happen, would I still be a Christian? It depends, because the resurrection can be defined... Now whether or not that's that can be, you know, backed up by scriptures, can be defined as a spiritual resurrection. He didn't physically become alive. He 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 just became alive in the spirit world some, somehow. Uh-huh. Sort of like a Jehovah's Witness uh version of okay. the resurrection, if that makes sense. So okay. I might go in that route. Uh-huh. If that makes sense. Yeah.
0: I think for me I would totally quit. Just really? Yeah. Oh yeah. <laughs> like yeah, if I could you be would sure, still be a Christian, but if you I would could not... be relatively sure that Jesus was not raised from the dead, I would stop being a Christian.
1: Yeah. That's interesting.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm just a hardliner on that question.
1: But you wouldn't deny God's existence, No, right? no, still... I think we okay. have
0: really good reasons to believe in God's existence. Right, right. You know, I, I would be unmoored from the Christian faith and need to investigate others more seriously than I have in the past. Right, right. Uh, I think my default would be to just go to Judaism because that's comfortable, and because I so love the Hebrew Bible, anyhow. But uh, you know, yeah, I mean, for me, the resurrection yeah. of yeah. Jesus—like, if it didn't happen, I'm not, I'm not going to stick stick around. And if it did happen, then it's the single most important event in all of human right, history.
1: Right. You would not consider the version that uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have.
0: I don't know. Uh, to me, okay. that version where there, there's still a dead body in the tomb, is that part of their belief?
1: Well, part of their belief is that the dead body somehow, you know, just disintegrated. Okay. But that's, yeah. that's speculation on their part. I'd have to think so, about it some more because I'm right, not right. as familiar with their,
0: <laughs> their position. So, uh, But let's get to your topic, your thesis. Let's go ahead and dive in. What are these objections that Ehrman raises? Give us just a brief overview before we really dial in.
1: Okay. Bart Ehrman offers a number of objections to establishing the resurrection of Jesus as a historical event. Uh, My thesis identified three of those objections, and I aim to briefly address the first, and critically examine the second and the third. Mm -hmm. Now the first objection that I've identified is what I call the general unreliability of the four canonical gospels. The second one is what I call the intrinsic improbability of miracles. And the third one is what I call the absolute inaccessibility to the supernatural. Okay. And so turning to the first one, the general unreliability of the Gospels, and you can always stop me if you have any questions or things to expand on or whatever.
0: Let's just briefly, before you get into the first one in more depth, the first one's pretty easy to understand. But let's get into uh, what these other two ones mean just very quickly when it comes to unreliability of the gospels that's self-explanatory if we can't trust the gospels then the evidence or or texts that say jesus was raised from the dead are are no longer worth considering uh but on these other ones uh the intrinsic improbability of miracles uh what, yeah. do, you, what do you what does that mean just in a brief you know couple sentences
1: okay so yeah i'm going to have to do more than that two, two paragraphs here <laughs> so this second objection states that, number one, miracles by their very nature are least probable events. Number two, historians can only establish what is probable. And number three, because of those two, historians cannot establish miracles as probable events. For How is it that historians who are only able to establish what is probable can possibly establish least probable events, Okay, like a miracle of the resurrection?
0: Miracles as being, by definition, improbable. And since they're improbable outside the purview of the historian, since history only deals with what probably happened. Uh, And then this last one, the absolute inaccessibility to the supernatural. What's that?
1: Yeah, according to Ehrman, historians, qua historians, or as historians, can only adjudicate historical claims. Historians cannot adjudicate theological claims like the resurrection of Jesus. And here, I think, Ehrman is partly right and partly wrong. He is partly right because the resurrection does have a theological aspect to it, namely, God perform the act of bringing a dead man back to life. So indeed, historians, by the very nature of their profession, do not have access to God or any supernatural power.
0: This one is the idea that uh, since the resurrection is theological, historians shouldn't even have to talk about it. They, you know, It's just sort of outside their area. That's correct. Okay.
1: And so regardless of their religious or non-religious background in the conventional historiography historians apply what is called methodological naturalism Uh which is an approach that disallows any supernatural power in a historian's inquiry of any event claim
0: yeah and we'll get more into that but let's let's circle back to this first objection that you handled the general unreliability of the gospels because most christians are going to hear you talking about improbability of miracles or the inaccessibility of the supernatural and they're, to going the to, supernatural. they're and they're just yeah. to this, and they're just going to say "Aaron, whatever man, the bible says Jesus was raised from the dead. I believe the bible. Therefore, Jesus was raised from the dead." So, we really do need to deal with this issue of the unreliability of the Gospels, gospels. because if the Gospels are fundamentally unreliable, uh, then uh, how can we know really anything about the resurrection of Jesus? Let's hear a little bit about this and really get into it in depth. Where should we start about the unreliability of the Gospels?
1: The Gospels to me are reliable. Mm -hmm. They're generally reliable. And there are lots and lots of information that can be extracted as historical facts. And as a matter of fact, even Bart Ehrman himself (laughs) extracts many of his historical facts to come up with his own theory of who Jesus was. In Bart Ehrman's view, Jesus was an an apocalyptic prophet. And later on, uh, Bart Ehrman wrote a book uh jesus being a failed apocalyptic prophet jewish apocalyptic prophet and so i'm wondering okay so if it if the gospels are unreliable why are you able to why do you get to manage to extract those information and come up with your own theory yeah so it sounds to me you're being hypocritical or maybe you're just saying that to try to gain popularity or you know get a lot of your books sold Mm. Sometimes I, I kind of wonder about Bart Ehrman, you know, being a sensationalist, you know, I'm not saying he's just that he's not just that, but he's that too, in addition to being a, a historian. So mm-hmm. the gospels are reliable. Okay. I start with that, but in my thesis, even if we grant that they're unreliable, generally speaking, mm-hmm. I think the four gospel are still reliable enough for us to be able to extract or mine historical facts so as to be able to establish the resurrection yeah, as the historical event. Mm-hmm. Many
0: historical Jesus scholars, certainly those involved with the various quests for the historical Jesus, okay. uh, they begin with this assumption that because the Gospels record miracles, therefore we can't just accept what the Gospels say at face value. Now, interestingly for Ehrman, he doesn't really angle himself, position himself in that way, Instead, he likes to focus on discrepancies between the Gospels. And uh, you, you've got, you've got a, a nice quote in your thesis. I wonder if you could read. Do, do you have your thesis there? Yeah. Uh, page 15. You see that uh, quote you have? Yeah, while you're pulling that up, I mean, this is really the linchpin for a lot of, typically I just call it liberal scholarship, Uh, Liberal scholarship says, all right, well, we're going to go ahead and do history on Jesus or history on Paul, and we're going to reconstruct what actually happened from these theological documents that can't be trusted. And uh, as a Bible-believing Christian, personally, to me, that's just like a supreme waste of time. But at the same time, this liberal approach to scholarship dominates, certainly a society of biblical literature, and most universities in the united states at least today uh if you go to a university and take a class like for example Ehrman himself is at the university of north carolina chapel hill you go there to take a bible class like the first thing he's going to do is hit you with a quote like this uh could, could you read that for us
1: what day did jesus die on that's a simple question and luckily we're told in both mark and john in mark's gospel we're told that jesus died the day after the Passover meal was eaten in Jerusalem. John tells us explicitly, chapter 19, verse 14, that Jesus died the day before the Passover meal was eaten on the day of preparation for the Passover. That's different, he says. He couldn't die both days. What about the time? According to Mark, he died at nine in the morning. According to John, he wasn't condemned to death until afternoon. John nineteen fourteen. Uh, these are accounts that differ from one another. Did Jesus carry his cross the entire way to Golgotha or did Simon of Cyrene carry it? It depends which gospel you read. Did both robbers mock Jesus or did only one of them mock him and the other come to his defense? It depends which gospel you read. Did the curtain in the temple rip in half before jesus died or was it after he died it depends which gospel you read mm-hmm. end of quote so
0: this is a standard speech that Ehrman makes i've heard him make right. it in multiple debates i've heard him do it in classes at the, at the great courses that i've taken uh, right. i actually read his entire new testament textbook i had to for school cover to cover oh Okay, uh, and uh, you know it's in there, and then he's his Jesus book that you mentioned earlier from the '90s. Right, uh, I've read that one too. Uh, the Apocalyptic Prophet of the New Millennium, which which I, I actually really enjoyed that book. I thought I thought that book was great, uh, except really? for the part where he doesn't believe that Jesus is the Son of Man, and the part where he says Jesus, you know, failed, and you know, since there's no resurrection. He proclaimed mm. this kingdom, but it never came. So I, I thought the book was right. actually really helpful in a lot of ways, but ended just tragically in this, in this uh, position of really Albert Schweitzer. I mean, he's really just echoing Schweitzer, uh, mm. maybe not in all the details, but to a large degree. Him and uh, Paula Fredrickson, E.P. Sanders, Dale Allison, a number of other. Dale Allison, yeah. yeah. Dale
1: Allison has, uh, yeah, he's really big on that too.
0: So the the driving force for this whole quest to decipher, discover the historical Jesus from the Gospels is this very dogmatically held belief that the discrepancies in the Gospels are so severe that we cannot trust both Mark and John. Mm -hmm. And the historical Jesus scholar doesn't want to say, oh, well, I'm just going to pick Mark and, and throw out John. They want to say, well, I will pick certain parts of Mark and certain parts of John, and certain parts of Matthew, certain parts of Luke. Yeah. And, you know, they'll maybe pick a couple parts of Thomas, Gospel of Thomas. And, mm-hmm. you know, they've got plenty of the younger, Tacitus, Suetonius. You know, there's other sources that they can work from a little bit. The Talmud has a little bit too. But the Gospels are, are the most. And uh, Paul, I suppose. They're trying to decipher, like, what, what is reliable out of these because they cannot be trusted. So your thesis, though, your approach is not trying to defend the Gospels or the New Testament or the Bible as a whole. Instead, you're saying, look, I'll just grant you that the Gospels right. are unreliable for the sake of this argument. Not that you necessarily yes. believe that, but you're going to grant it for the sake of the argument. Yes. Um, wh- why did you decide to take that approach?
1: Because there is this way, I believe, that can be used in establishing the resurrection as a historical event. Uh, it is what I call the minimal facts approach. Okay. Now, there are a number of apologists out there who are against that approach. Uh, you have Lydia McGrew and uh, a number of other apologists out there. But this minimal facts approach is advanced primarily by Gary Habermas and uh, Michael Lacona and even uh, William Lane Craig. Yeah. And to me, this minimal facts approach is very attractive. Mm-hmm. Now, that's not to say that the minimal facts seals the deal. And I'll explain why. Because we're only trying to extract historical facts, certain historical facts. You have the a burial by Joseph of Arimathea, the discovery of the empty tomb. Uh, You have the the experience of the disciples having seen Jesus Mm -hmm. and the origin of the belief in the resurrection, that is, God raised Jesus from the dead.
0: And those are the four main minimal
1: facts. Right. They can be extracted from the Gospels. Now, I'm not saying, however, that those alone... Can establish the resurrection as a historical event, mm-hmm. and i'll I'll explain the reason why to add to those four facts, you also have Paul as having seen Jesus on his way to Damascus, and you also have the brother of Jesus James, who was a skeptic and then believed Jesus' resurrection later on. Mm-hmm. You know you can add those two there. Even all of those together, to me, they're still not enough to establish the resurrection. but they give us a confidence that there, there are some historical data that can be used to shore up uh, historicity of, of the resurrection of Jesus. Yeah. Now, the reason I say that it's not enough to use those minimal facts is because you have to know what the resurrection definition is. Mm-hmm. The resurrection means that God raised Jesus back to life. So God is involved in the process. Right. And so the following are part and parcel in establishing the resurrection. You have God's existence, God's involvement with humanity throughout history, the religious context of Jesus' life, and God's wanting to raise Jesus from the dead. God's being factored into to establishing the resurrection in my thesis leads me to Ehrman's second and third objections. So uh, I'll, I'll stop there and we can have a discussion about it.
0: Yeah. I hope everyone was able to follow that. That was a beautiful summary of the ha- Habermas-slash-Craig-minimal-facts approach. lacona uh, Right. Yeah, Lacona as well. Uh, Case for the Resurrection book that he did with uh, Habermas back in the day. Uh, yeah. But um, I want to add to that the historical consideration that N.T. Wright likes to bring up. Okay. That hmm. you have to also account for... And this maybe fits under the belief in the resurrection. You have to account for the sociological factor that there was a group of Christians after their leader got publicly humiliated and executed. The way Wright explains it is, well, if your Messiah gets killed and you've got messianic movements either side of Jesus, what everybody does is either they get a new Messiah or they go home.
1: Right. (laughs) You
0: know, and so, you know, I think that's just to add, I'm not disputing what you said. I think what you said was a beautiful summary. So you also need an alternative explanation for why Christianity was compelling among Greco-Roman people, among Jewish people first, and then among Greco-Roman people, considering the fact that their Messiah was executed. You know, like, what is attractive about that? Why would you follow that sort of faith? What's it doing for you? So it puts a lot of burden on a historian of early Christianity like Ehrman to be able to say, okay, yeah, he was a failed prophet, he got it wrong, he got executed, publicly humiliated and everything else, but this X, you know, whatever X is, must have been so attractive that a movement still began under his name. So that's something to think about. I, I want to come back to this...
1: That's interesting, yeah.
0: ...this whole subject of reliability of the Gospels... Sure. Uh, I know you're a Mike Lycona fan. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and admit to also being a Mike Lycona fan, probably not as much as you. I think you took classes with him, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. He was one of my professors at uh, my seminary, Southern Evangelical Seminary, home based in Charlotte, North Carolina.
0: Very good. And, uh, you know, I've listened to his podcast a little bit and uh, watched a couple of his debates. I wonder if you, you probably come across this book here, uh, yeah, I got that's that book. The uh, differences. Why are there differences in the Gospels? Right. Um, where he leans heavily on Plutarch and comparing the various parallel accounts in his biographies right. as a, a way of standardizing the level of accuracy expected by ancient historians and then applying that or comparing that to the Gospels and saying, look, guys, this is the same level, the same range of accuracy that. That we also see in the gospels and we are putting our own anachronistic desire or penchant for preciseness on this ancient right. biography that they they you know so basically it's our problem the discrepancies in the gospels are our problem yeah you know no ancient person would have like that paragraph you read from Erman. no ancient right. person would have said oh those are really compelling reasons not to trust these biographies Yes. Because I know that this book didn't come out until after you were done with your thesis yeah. and everything. Uh, did he ever talk about this in class? And what was, what's your take on it? Do you go with him on that? And I know Lydia McGrew has been very critical and others.
1: Oh, yeah, yes. Yeah. She wrote a whole book against him. On the Gospel of John, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Because um, Lacona says that there are some things that Jesus said there that were not historically spoken by Jesus and Lydia McGrew vehemently disagrees with that. What
0: about his general approach, though? What do you think about it? Is it decent, or are you an inerrancy guy? Or where, oh, no, where no, do you, I, I don't believe in inerrancy. I reject Where do you I put your that. stake in the ground? Uh,
1: at the time that I had Dr. Mike Lacona, he was already talking about the material that he wanted to, to put there. Mm-hmm. He described the way the gospel writers uh, patterned their way of writing and way of composing the biography of Jesus being similar to the contemporary writings of Plutarch. You mentioned Plutarch, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, There is what's called displacement. Mm -hmm. So there is one historical aspect that the writers of the gospel displaced over elsewhere. Plutarch did a lot of that and a number of other ancient contemporary writers. There is the telescoping, right? You have Mark who speaks and writes very short occurrences. Mm -hmm. But you also have Matthew telescopes, you know, like expands on certain details that Mark has in his gospel. So there is displacement, telescoping, and uh, a number of other things that uh, Mike had already taught his students even before he wrote that book. Yeah, it's really interesting. And uh, it seems to me that because Mike is an inerrantist, you know, he, he believes that the Bible has no errors. His attempt was to show that, hey, these, quote unquote, contradictions can be explained if we look at the way writers like Plutarch wrote his writings. Yeah. And so I remember uh, Dr. Lacona would use the word or the term hermeneutical waterboarding. <laughs> In other words, he says that because he criticizes a lot of the evangelicals <laughs> that do hermeneutical Waterboarding, in other words, they come up with all kinds of ridiculous attempts to reconcile differences. They're called harmonies, harmonization. Yeah, they're trying to harmonize them that they sound so ridiculous, you know. So anyway, so he he's against that. Yeah. Waterboarding, you know what waterboarding is, you know, you're gonna try to just
0: drown you and
1: interrogate somebody by drowning them. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, So.
0: (laughs) Wow. Uh, I know this is not our main topic for today, so I uh, sure, appreciate sure. you giving me the flexibility to go off script here a little bit. Oh, that's not a problem.
1: <laughs> I'm enjoying this. <laughs> this
0: is fascinating stuff, and you know what? We need to talk yeah, about yeah. it. Yeah, so mean, I guess we could we could maybe enumerate three positions with respect to inspiration. You've got your classic inerrantist, which like uh, Southern Baptist or Craig Blomberg. They would argue yeah. for there being a way to harmonize any issue that you find between the Gospels. And that's probably the majority of Christianity would be in that category of like, there's some sort of, I might not know what the explanation is, but there's, there's some sort of it. And then the second one would be this Lycona approach that says, yes, inerrancy is true if we apply their standards instead of our standards to what counts as an error. Right. And then the third you level would be, no, inerrancy is false. They were just doing whatever they were doing. And we have to f- use other criteria of authenticity to, to decipher if this actually happened or if this didn't happen. Maybe there's a fourth one in there too, but th- that seems to be like the range of options. Um, to,
1: to be an inerrantist, right?
0: Well, the third position is not to be an inerrantist at all. The first two are, yeah. Yeah, the first two are. So you have like the classic and then the Lyconian style, which is using their standards instead of our standards for what counts as an error. And then the third would be not affirming inerrancy at all and saying, if we admit that there are errors between the Gospels, then we also have to admit that we need some sort of criteria, or criterion at least, of authenticity yeah. to determine what is true and what is not true. Yeah. And uh, that has a whole slew of problems itself. Uh, I don't know if right. you ever came across Luke Timothy Johnson's book back in the day, The Real Jesus. He went through uh, a lot of these questers and said, look, these guys are all applying the same criteria of authenticity, and each one has its own Jesus. It's radically different than the others. You know, you've know, got the cynic sage Jesus. You've got the apocalyptic Jesus. Right. You've got all these different <laughs> Jesuses. And yet they're all applying the same methodology. And then Luke Timothy Johnson, who I believe is a Catholic, his takeaway was, well, I think the methodology is flawed. So Hmm. any one of these positions you you adopt is going to take work and (laughs) to to sustain it. Uh, But it's really a fascinating topic to figure out, don't you think?
1: Yeah. uh, The way biblical inerrancy is... Formulated when I went to Southern Evangelical Seminary, this was directly from Dr. Norman Geisler, who passed away, I believe, last year or two. Yeah. Uh, It's as follows Uh, it's, it's actually a deductive argument. So you have premise one, the Bible is God's word. Premise two, God cannot make mistakes. Conclusion, the Bible cannot make mistakes. So it's a deductive argument. If we grant the premise that the Bible is God's word and the premise God cannot make mistakes because he doesn't lie, he cannot lie, he tells truth and nothing but the truth, it follows necessarily that the Bible cannot make mistakes. It cannot lie. It is infallible. It is inerrant. Mm -hmm. And so, okay, I get it, but one way to refute this uh, deductive argument is by questioning Premise one: The Bible is God's word. And in, in what way do we mean? <laughs> yes. Do we regard the Bible as God's word? Right. Well, what do you mean by that? You know that that gets complicated. Yeah, Very well, that gets into
0: different theories of how we got the scriptures. And you have on the one end the dictation hypothesis, right? Uh, right. Which is, you know, to to me sounds a, a little bit like uh, mechanical. You know, like the yes, yes. <laughs> the various. Authors had nothing to do with it. To on the other side, you know, just sort of a loose view of inspiration, and then there's a lot of middle positions as well. Yes. Uh, so yeah, that that's a good point.
1: Yeah, and then you can you also have uh, God cannot make mistakes. Okay, so now we get into natural theology, uh, not not just the Bible, but you already have this natural theology in place. Are we classical theists? Are we Molinists? Are we uh, open theists? You know, I, I didn't really become acquainted with open theism until I became a biblical Unitarian, by the way. And when I started hearing it, it makes sense to be an open theist, you know. Yeah. So, can we be open theists and affirm premise two, namely God cannot make mistakes? Well, it depends what you mean by, you know, so that too can get complicated.
0: Mm, yeah. Well, I want to come back to resurrection because (laughs) essentially essentially your case is that even if we grant that there are discrepancies between the Gospels, even if we don't assume inspiration or inerrancy and just treat the four Gospels as historical documents like any other historical documents from the same period of time, That even if we just approach it that way, there's still good evidence to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ as a historical event. Is that a summary of what you're saying?
1: Yes, but I have to qualify that by by even with all of those things that I enumerated, you know, the burial by Joseph of Arimathea, Mm -hmm. the discovery of the empty tomb. The uh, appearance of seeing Jesus alive, the origin of the disciples' belief that God raised Jesus from the dead, Paul's conversion on his way to Damascus, James, the brother of Jesus' conversion. Even with all those in place, those things don't really seal the deal for the resurrection, but they do shore up the historical aspect of the resurrection. Because the resurrection, is not just historical, it's also theological. That makes sense. So we can't really divorce theology from history. Those things go hand in hand. Mm
0: -hmm, Yeah. With respect, you call it the G U G, the general unreliable of the gospel. I love your acronyms, by the way. They're
1: Yeah. I think they're great. (laughs) Yeah, the general unreliability of the gospels and then the intrinsic improbability of miracles and then the absolute inaccessibility to the supernatural, you know.
0: Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah, it's great. I don't know if it was Lycona or Craig or one of these guys in debates and and maybe some other sources as well. They actually will turn the tables on this whole discrepancy in the Gospels issue when it comes to resurrection appearances. And they will say, if all of the resurrection appearances fit together and seem to be so perfectly laid out, no one would trust them. Because they would argue that the gospel authors were colluding with each other.
1: They're in collusion. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You hear a lot about that from uh, Lee Strobel. Oh, Lee Strobel. Okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lacona and Craig did mention that too. But going back to what you asked me earlier about our ability to establish all these facts, historical facts, I'm sure you're familiar with the criteria in establishing events as historical facts. You have the the dissimilarity criterion, the uh, embarrassing mm-hmm. criterion. You also have the multiple attestation. So in one degree or another, these seven facts or eight facts that I presented can be established as historical facts because they meet one or the other, one or more of those criteria. There are right. A number of other criteria. I'm sure you're, you're familiar with that because yeah, you're a historian. Yeah,
0: yeah that's, that's a really powerful approach. And what it does is, is it basically, as an apologist, what you're saying is, you know what, I'm just going to come into the liberal Christians or the, not liberal Christian, liberal, liberal scholarship, or as they like to call themselves, critical scholars, as if like right, no right. one else is critical but them. But uh, I'm right. going to come into their world <laughs> and I'm going to play the game their way with their yes. rules. And right, right. you still get a resurrected Jesus, That's you're right. still applying all their restrictions to what you can and can't do. Right. You still come up with real, a really strong minimal facts case. So I think there's just incredible value in this approach, even if most of us are thinking to ourselves, well, this is just sort of like a, an exercise. It's an intellectual exercise. You know? Right, right. Um, I think there's value to it.
1: Here is where I have a problem with Craig, Lacona, and Habermas. When they present the minimal facts, it is as though it's a done deal. Mm -hmm. Well, it depends. If you're someone who is already a Christian who is having doubts about the historical aspect of the resurrection, yeah, sure. But if it's someone who is really skeptic and, you know, especially for that of an atheist, that's not enough. Yeah. Let's be honest, man. (laughs) Yeah. It's a
0: historical riddle to explain how these facts could be true. It leaves them with a riddle, not necessarily with the gospel.
1: Yes. And the fact that the idea that a dead man, a truly dead man, becoming alive is extremely unlikely. <laughs> yes. That's just, that never happens, you know. Mm-hmm. Now, obviously, we, we can get into, uh, you know, philosophical objections. There are so many things that are extremely unlikely, but they do happen. Yeah.
0: Well, I think we'll get into that in our future episodes together.
1: Sure, sure. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's that's an important subject for us to cover. But as far as today goes, is there anything else you'd like to say by way of conclusion on this this issue with respect to Ehrman and his approach?
1: First of all, thank You so much again, Sean, for allowing me to be on your show. And it's an opportunity to share my uh, take on the matter. In summary, Bart Ehrman is very popular, and the skeptical world is celebrating. And uh, we have a good number of Christians who are doubting their faith, questioning their faith. Uh, A number, you know, a good number of them had actually abandoned their faith and become atheists. Yeah. Some of them don't become atheists or agnostics. They become, you know, liberal Christians or progressive Christians. That's another topic altogether. I just want to say that we have answers. We can even play by the rules of critical scholarship. You know, they they call themselves critical scholar because, Mm -hmm. you know, they think they're, you know, they're doing it the right way because they're, they're objective and they're unbiased. They're well, not no, no, no one is objective. <laughs> they're not unbiased. Yeah, they're no so, one is unbiased. I, I all, would say they're just as yeah.
0: fundamentalist as you know, like the hardest core fundamentalist. You know, I, I'm sorry. I went to a seminary where, like, yeah. the. Critical approach was like the only approach. I also studied under Paula Fredrickson a little bit. You did? Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, like it was taught as dogma. Like you have to do it this way. You can't think, you can't pursue scholarship, you know, outside these parameters. And these are our dogmas and you have to agree with them. And I don't think that it's a fair statement to say that they're unbiased. A
1: couple of things. What one is... We're going to get into why that is a dogma. It has to do with the current conventional historiography's philosophy that they don't allow God or right. any supernatural power to be in the picture. That, that is why, okay? Right. And uh, I have a proposal in my thesis as to how, how we ought to proceed. And, um, yeah, modified historiography.
0: This, this is going to be a great episode. Stay tuned right. for it.
1: Right, right and uh there's one other thing that i forgot <laughs> so uh,
0: we'll come back he's gonna come back yeah <laughs> we'll come back we'll be sure to pick that up uh but uh, you know i think one last thing i'd like to make just before landing the plane here and saying goodbye right. is that uh lycona famously went up to gary habermas when he was a student and said to gary habermas uh, professor i don't think i'm a christian anymore. I found differences between the Gospels and I, I think I have to give up my faith now. And uh, Habermas said, Do you still believe that Jesus died for your sins? You still believe God raised him from the dead? Do you still believe that he's returning? You know, he, he just went through like these minimal facts about the gospel right. itself, right. not the Gospels, but the gospel of, of salvation itself.
1: The message. And,
0: yeah. yeah. And Lycona's just like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Habermas is like, You're still a Christian. It's okay. It's not the end of the world. What you're right. what you're struggling with is the subject of inspiration and inerrancy. And I think it is important for us to separate those two at least a yes. little bit to say, look, the gospel message is first, you know, and resurrection is is really at the core of the gospel message. So like yeah. that is a non negotiable, but like how you view the gospels, how you view the Bible as a whole really is is extremely important, but it's secondary. Yes.
1: Yeah. Um, so yeah, the second thing, by the way, uh, that I was going to expand on you because you you mentioned it that liberal scholars think that they're unbiased, they're objective. Well, no, no one is unbiased. Uh, we we're all to a certain extent, you know, we, we can't be fully objective. We can be to a certain extent be objective. So our job is to manage our bias. That's why we have peer reviews. That that'd be my second thought on that one. So yeah, going back to what you said. Um, yeah, it's it's not the end of the world, you know, because uh, even if the Bible is full of errors and the Gospels are generally unreliable, we can still have confidence in the resurrection of Jesus because, because we have enough historical evidence mm-hmm. to that end. So,
0: yeah. I'm just going to say for the record, I don't think the Bible is riddled with errors. I think it's <laughs> I think it is inspired, but anyhow, just to end on that note, I don't want to leave people like just in despair there. But yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> thank you so much, Aaron, for yeah. your hard work on this subject. Uh, how can people follow you and, and get to see some of your work?
1: Well, uh, I'm sure you're going to be providing a link to yeah. my YouTube channel, and if anybody wants to contact me, they can uh, go that way. Okay, you know, just and what's it you know, called? Make comments life and beyond
0: life and beyond right wow that sounds pretty cool
1: yeah thank you
0: and your name is aaron schellenberger so if you type in life and beyond you might get some weird stuff but if you type in aaron schellenberger also you'll definitely find the right guy right
1: Yeah, I haven't actually tried that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Well, I guess we'll find out. If enough people type it in, maybe YouTube will create a way to to get to you. But uh, hey, thanks so much for your contribution on this today. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, that concludes this first part of three from Aaron Schellenberger. And if you would like to read his thesis, which goes into much more detail... You can do that at restitudio.org. I posted it there as a PDF that you can view on the site, and that's under episode 444, Resurrection Objection 1. And uh, once again, his thesis is called An Evaluation of Bart D. Ehrman's Challenge to Establishing the Resurrection of Jesus as a Historical Event. And and in that thesis, he goes through all three of his reasons. So if you want to jump ahead and see where he's going, uh, feel free to go take a look at that. You can follow Aaron Schellenberger on his YouTube channel, which is called Life and Beyond, as well as on his blog, Abandoning the Trinity, both of which I have links to in the show notes for this episode. Also, I have links to Schellenberger's interview with Dale Tuggy. He did a two-part interview with him back in 2019, so you can take a look at that if you're interested. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on what we discussed—inspiration, the topic of inerrancy, infallibility, and how it relates to the resurrection. What do you think about using the progressive scholarly approach to evangelize people in that camp or unbelievers in general? Love to hear your thoughts. Come on to restitudio.org on episode four forty four, Resurrection Objection One, and leave your feedback there. Also just wanted to give a mention about an event coming up that I'm coordinating. It's called Family Camp. It's it's an event for singles, couples, families. The idea of the word family there is not that you have to have kids or something. It's just that we are all the family of God. Anyhow, it's an event we run, we at Living Hope run at Lake George, New York, at a beautiful conference center there called Silver Bay. It's a YMCA, but it's kind of souped up with some nicer rooms and some rustic rooms, depending on what your price range is. And at that event, uh, there are going to be a number of speakers, including my dad and a number of others uh, Jerry Weirwill, Will Barlow, Jacob Rohr, uh, potentially others. And so if you are interested in coming, we. We have sessions in the morning and in the evenings. And the afternoon is open. There's sports. There there's mountains that you can hike. There's a beautiful lake. They have boats, and uh, whether you're new to the faith or you have been been trucking for some time, it's a great week away with the family of God to recharge and to recenter yourself. It's a really great opportunity to get knocked out of your daily routine and pursue sanctification, and then come back home recharged, refreshed, and ready to live for God. So anyhow, if any of you are interested in coming, we are registering now. We've got about 100 people signed up so far, and uh, I would just really love to reach the limit. I'm not even quite sure what the limit is, if it's like 150 or 200 or something like that, but uh, I would love to reach that limit. We've just started promoting it in earnest, and I wanted to promote it to you, dear Restitutio listeners, so that if any of you wanted to take a week off and hang out in the Adirondack Mountains starting June 26 and going to July 2nd, I would love to see you there. And you can sign up at lhim.org, that stands for Living Hope International Ministries, lhim.org. I uh, also put a link in the show notes for this episode. I posted it also in the Rest Studio Facebook group if you see it there. It's got a little picture of a sailboat. Those sailboats are actual. If you go, you will see those sailboats on the lake. That's not like a fake picture. It looks too good to be true. So we'd love to see some of you there. Uh, reach out if you have any questions about the event. I understand it is taking a risk to go way up to New York State uh, for many of you, but uh, it would be great to see you. Email me if you have questions about it, sean at restitutio.org. I'll catch you next week. If you'd like to support us, you can do that at restitutio.org. And remember, the truth has nothing to fear.